gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Becoming Men podcast. I'm your host, Ray Delanues, and this is the podcast for good men on their journey to live epic lives. I show up every week with legendary guests who help me bring you some of the most impactful content out there on masculinity, and we don't disappoint. This week's episode is brought to you by mastermypurpose.com, but a little bit more on that later. Today, I'm joined by pastor, writer, and fellow podcaster, Chase Replogle. Chase is the author of the book, The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. And today we talk about five men who, like you and like me, wrestled with their own desires and who, by faith, matured into better men. Gentlemen, Chase Replogle. Chase, thank you so much for joining us, man. Yeah, thanks. It's a privilege to be with you and uh, grateful for an opportunity just to have a meaningful conversation. I have to ask you, if you could go back let's say a decade and talk to your self, what would you say to that guy? You got one minute and then you're just going to disappear. One of the most important themes for me, so I'm 35. So you're taking me back to my, my okay. 25. So it's that transition to my 30s. I'd probably talk about faithfulness, just showing up, being faithful, having patience. Um, man, especially into your 30s, that's a tough transition because all that ambition is sort of building that adventure. We'll talk about some of these things in your 20s. And then all of a sudden you wake up in your 30s and you got mortgage payment and car payment and two dogs to feed and two kids and you know maybe career didn't pan out everything you thought it was going to be and so i think one of the most important conversations through that season i'd have with myself is just keep showing up just keep trusting what god is doing and uh, enjoy it i hear that i really do and i feel like that resonates with me because this year when we by we i mean me and my wife press into like lord what is the word for this year, you know, for our family, what is it that you want to highlight this year? And I, and I heard two words and it was trust and reliance. And I'm like, Oh, wow. Thank you for that clarity. I thought that I was going to like set out and like (laughs) take a long journey into figuring out what the Lord has for me. I'm going to have to do some fasting. And it like came right away. And I'm like, trust and reliance. That's easy enough. And it sounds good, but getting down to it. Like, what does that even mean? So when you're talking to yourself, you're like, yeah, just like continue to be faithful and like, just keep showing up. Like, what does that really mean? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I have this way. I say to my congregation that one of the most important spiritual disciplines I know is just showing up. And part of what it means, I think, well, why, why is trust important for you? Well, if everything's going great, you don't really need it. Number one. And if you do say, well, I'm trusting God, well, cool. It's paying off for you. It's working. Like that's easy. Right. But to say that this is going to be a season in which trust is important implies that this is also going to be a season in which there's ambiguity, in which there's unanswered question, in which there may be even fear or risk that trust is going to be required because I can't do it on my own. There's something here that I'm not going to understand. So faithfulness. Yeah, that sounds like a very Christian answer, right? A pastor would say, just be faithful, keep showing up. But a lot of that is also acknowledging the flip side, that this is going to be a season, uh, 20s into my 30s, looking back on it, where a lot of my friends are going to walk away from faith. A lot of my friends are going to drop out of ministry. I'm a pastor and I watch that happen, where a lot of people are just going to become restless with life and start buying bigger houses and buying boats and (laughs) buying all the toys. And uh, so to be faithful is also a way of saying, don't get caught up in that. Don't don't get caught up in the the sort of the ambitions growing out of proportion, but just keep showing up before the Lord. It's also a way of saying, which I think your word trust is, is similar. It's a way of saying God is willing to take some of this responsibility if we'll let him, which is always a pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Why I say to my congreg- congregation, just keep showing up is perhaps God's not asking as much out of you as you think. God's willing to to do some of that work. He's willing to lead you and discipline you and guide you and help you grow and mature you. 
but it does take you showing up. It does take you putting yourself in a position, a humble position of willingness to follow him. Uh, but if you're willing to follow him and if you're really willing to trust, to use your word, then God can work in that hard. God can do things in that situation. So yeah, it's probably an acknowledgement. Maybe this will be a tough season, uh, but you don't, what's Jesus's words? That 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 yoke is easy and the burden is light if you're just willing to put mm-hmm. that yoke, that burden on. Uh, he'll, he'll carry most of the weight of it. Just keep showing up and be faithful. Well, you're spot on with that. Uh, absolutely. That trust uh, is because of the ambiguity and the level of risk and the amount of unknown that I needed to face uh, throughout this entire year. And I really did need to hold on to that. But I like what you said, you know, just there's the simplicity in like, just keep showing up. And that is, I would say, a large amount of the uh, of the equation. I say I think about jujitsu. Right. So like I'm working towards my purple belt. And sometimes when I'm looking at my skin, the sores that I have from the mat burns and I feel, I'm like achy, my rib hurts because some guy went a little bit too hard. My joints are hurting. And I'm like, I just got to show up. Right. And it's not like just show up and like just half-ass it once I'm there, but it's like just the act of putting my gi on, driving to jujitsu, walking through the front door, like that's 90% of the battle. The rest of the way, it's like, okay, it's on you instructor. Like I'm just here (laughs) for whatever you want to do. Take your beating, right? Yeah. Take the beating. Yes. Keep going. Keep getting better. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, Hey, I actually want to be able to jump into, um, as soon as we can here, because I know the guys are excited about the title here. Um, I want to jump into your book. Uh, and you did an awesome job at being able to take some literary um, art, right? Some of the, the the stuff that people have been reading and looking into for hundreds of years now from uh, Shakespeare and really like turn it into uh, a, an awesome teaching moment for men. And, and the book, uh, The Five Masculine Instincts, a guide to becoming better, uh, a better man. Like guys, does this not fit this podcast to T, right? Like let's become better men. And so I really just want to ask you, why did you write the book? What prompted you to write the book and where did this come from uh, inside of you? Yeah. Well, I mentioned a moment ago, I'm a pastor first and foremost. So pastor, and then I do writing. A lot of the things I write about come out of those pastoral experiences. And like a lot of men I've watched over the last five years or so where, well, for one, the conversation of what is manhood and masculinity has become controversial um, it, mm-hmm. from cultural moments to marketing campaigns to politics. I mean, just about everywhere people are weighing in on what it means, <clears throat> excuse me, to be a man. What is masculinity? What are the dangers of masculinity? And I watched um, as men in my congregation really struggled with those conversations, what to do with them, what does it mean? Uh, and there were two sort of polarized views that seemed to come out of that season. One was that masculinity, traditional forms of masculinity are toxic and we need to deconstruct them and build a new identity around masculinity for the future. And then there was a kind of opposite reaction to that that said, no, 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 your raw masculine instincts, that's that's what makes you you. That's your salvation. You need to indulge that raw masculinity with a kind of wild abandon. Uh, and it seemed in my estimation that both of those approaches were folk, too focused on external things, characteristics, interests, um, attributes of men. And nobody was really having a conversation with men about how do I just become a better man? How do I just have better character? How do I just bear responsibility better? How do, how do I get my discipline myself to keep showing up? Um, because telling myself I need to reconstruct my identity or I just need to indulge whatever raw masculinity is there. Both of those sort of leave me stuck in who I am. Neither really offers a path forward towards something better. 
And that's something the ancient men used to have more of. They had this conversation around virtue or character. What does it mean to grow in character? What are the intentional practices I put in place in my life to become better? Uh, that almost seems sort of like you roll your eyes at it in our day, right? Like virtue, what kind of language is that? But I wanted to rescue some of that for the men that I pastor from myself. I'm raising a son as well. Uh, what does it mean to just grow in character? How do I take on more responsibility by becoming a person of greater character? And I think there are a lot of tools in what we have by faith, what we have in the scriptures, the men of the Bible that, that help us cut that path through some of the controversy to just become better men. It's a, a simple title, but a guide to becoming better men really was what I was aiming at. How do we just grow in character to yes. be better? Wow. I, I, I like the word intentional. The guys who are listening, those faithful listeners, they know that I am obsessed with that word intentional. You said intentional practice. You use that with virtue. I'm thinking of Aristotle and, and just like his focus on the way that you become something that you take on a virtue is by continuously doing that thing, right? And having those opportunities to do that thing. So, I, you know, as an example, I always use courage, right? Like if you want to embody the, the virtue of courage and have courage become part of who you are as a man, then you need to choose to do courageous things. That's like the only way that you build courage, right? Like you can't build courage by just willing it to be there. And then, oh crap, here comes a lion, a tiger and a bear, and it's no nowhere to be found. Uh, Cause you were just thinking of it. No, you actually need to step into this thing. And so it sounds like a lot of what you're uh, referring to is this uh, need for us to actually intentionally practice these things, to focus on these things, um, on the characteristics that we want to uh, to be inside of us as men, to form and shape us as the men that we were created to be. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So Peter writes in one of his letters in the New Testament that we should add to faith virtue and add to virtue godliness and to godliness brotherly love brotherly affection um, he's painting wow. this idea that there should be progress in your life that as you're maturing and growing as a believer you should be not only just having faith but you should be practicing some of these things you should be intentional about living out and cultivating this character right. this virtue uh, there's definitely a lot of that that goes on in the Bible. But one of the things that's always struck me about the Bible is the way in which it tends to talk about character as fruit. So the way the ancients like Aristotle would have thought of it is as habits, right? So these have mm -hmm. to become habitual. I make them habits in my life so that when I need them, that character is there. The New Testament tends to talk of them more as fruit in my life. Uh, and the difference, I think, is both are saying we should be intentional. You should be practicing these. But I think oftentimes these kinds of characteristics we think of, the virtue we think of, can be byproducts of growing in Christ's likeness. So certainly courage is something you practice. And I think scripture says there are tests that come that reveal that, right? By the testing of our faith, we develop this steadfastness or endurance. But there's also times where becoming more like Christ and growing more in like Christ-like character has the byproduct of also producing courage in my life. There's wow. a um, there's a medieval writing that's actually talking about Mary, but it's talking about how she was praying and, and contemplating the holiness of God. And that as she prayed, she began to realize her humility, how small she was compared to the greatness of God. And the medieval writer put that in that moment of realization, she received all other virtues that they were sort of mm -hmm. infused into her through humility and I think it's a way of how the New Testament tends to talk about there's certain things you need to pay attention to in your life, cultivating your heart, cultivating Christ likeness. And I actually think manhood itself is one of these things. 
if you aim directly at manhood, I think you often get a kind of caricature of manhood, right? You get like flaunting something that looks like manhood. But if you really try to grow internally, if you try to grow in Christ likeness and focus on those those attributes he describes, right, humility and meekness and, and a hunger and thirst for righteousness, then a lot of these external virtues, they become byproducts of that pursuit. As you grow an internal character, then those external virtues began to manifest themselves like fruit on the tree. Uh, they're there. And I think manhood itself is like that. I think if you pursue Christ like character, one day you sort of wake up and realize I'm more the man I wanted to be than if I had just tried to go out and become that man. We're yes. really all pursuing Christ likeness. And that sense of manhood is one of the fruits that begins to cultivate in our life through that pursuit. So well said. Wow. Wow. That was so well said. Yeah. Because like you said before, like those traditional um, sort of masculine things that we need to change or those over like the indulging uh, in, in the rawness, uh, of masculinity, like those external things do nothing to really get at the heart of what we need to be, to be able to, like you said here, um, cultivating manhood, really yeah. cultivating yeah, the, not, the substance anti, of the things that matter. I'm not anti those like traditional masculine traits. I think we need, right. there are times men need to show some aggression. There's time we need courage and there's time we, we need men to be strong. But I think the thing we're actually looking for is a kind of internal strength that allows those things to be properly right. balanced and used. Uh, and if you just try to indulge those external things without an internal core to operate from, they tend to go too far. We tend to practice them with with a lack of wisdom and they can be yes. damaging just as much as uh, not having them. Yes. Or, or they collapse on themselves. You're absolutely right. And I think every single person here listening would agree with you there. Uh, you need to have that foundation there for, for those things to exist. Uh, and, you know, I'm just thinking, man, of some of the, the things that like are so perverse and we have allowed them to stay in society. Like I'm thinking of a commercial, uh, a Wendy's commercial, like real men eat meat, you know what I mean? <laughs> just like these like external things that we uh, will just embody and take on. And maybe it's out of like, I'm going to say laziness for a lack of better terms, but it's because we're not being more intentional. We're not getting deep. We're not going to like the fifth layer, right. Of the five layer bean dip, as I like to say, like, we're not uh, getting to the thing under the thing, under the thing that drives everything. So we attach ourselves to these like very superficial ideas of what masculinity is. And we hold tight to those because we're so insecure in our own definition, masculinity that we're like, okay, this seems easy. I like that one. This is good. Like men have to have long beards. I'm clean shaven today, guys. Yeah, um, men need bit. to like, right, eat. But I got a little bit. So <laughs> it looks good, man. It looks good on you. Uh, men need to, you know, eat a lot of meat and be lift heavy weights and drive a truck. But like you have a guy that like, he's, a little more thin because he's actually a runner and he drives a Prius because he it's an economical car. You know what I mean? And he's actually a vegan. You know? Yeah, I think there's a line in Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's one of my favorite books where he says that the marketer doesn't need to know what's right with the product. He only needs to know what's wrong with you. And that's what you're <laughs> describing, right? Like we can sell products not by saying, look how good this cheeseburger is, but by, yes. by sort of pointing that finger, sort of rubbing your finger into the wound of someone's insecurity and saying, if, if, if you were really who you could be or confident, if this problem right. wasn't there, then you would, you would have this or want this, or you would look like this and look like there's nothing wrong with 
wearing boots and having a beard and driving a pickup. I mean, you're describing a little bit of my life, but if you put those <laughs> things on as a way of trying to solve some deeper insecurity, well, that's yes. that sort of caricature of manhood that I right. think makes you just, you know, you're an imposter and you know it deep down inside, you live with that, that insecurity constantly. And the worst kind of man, I mean, I think I write at one point in the book that the most dangerous man is not a man of aggression. It's the weak man who's, indulging insecurity, right? Who's constantly trying to prove something externally, but doesn't have the character internally. Like that's almost all the damage is done. I mean, the fatherlessness issue, the abuse of women, mm -hmm. I mean, you go down the list, the addictions, it tends to be because we're not taking seriously that internal problem and solving it. So yeah, yeah anytime, anytime you're sort of trying to put on manhood as if it were some external thing that you could wear or like or, or buy, you're never really addressing those core questions of, no, who am I before the Lord? What are the areas in my life that I'm weak and need to become stronger and grow internally? Mm -hmm. What's that character that's missing from my life that needs to be cultivated? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I will pick at something that you said. Sometimes we do know that we are acting as imposters, but there's times where we don't. Uh, sometimes it's not as apparent and guys, you know, like I don't ever say something on this podcast and don't live it out. I talk about the, the importance of community, the importance of coaching, the importance of getting with somebody and really wrestling, um, with, with some of the things that are going on internally, uh, in my own conversations with my therapist, it, it just like came out where she's like, you know, there sounds like there is some imposter syndrome going on here. And I'm like, me, no way. I'm very secure in who I am and what I, and I, what I bring to the table. There's no imposter syndrome here, uh, but man, it, it can sneak in there. And sometimes you're unaware of it uh, because man, it's, it's like survival of the fittest. Oh, no, I don't want to say survival of the fittest. It's like, we are, sometimes we get to the point where we just need to survive. And so we will, cloud our minds as much as possible, or maybe like stuff something down, not think about it as much so that we can continue to live this reality, right? That we created ourselves um, as we want it to look and, and not point to the faults inside of us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. As men, I think we're prone to that kind of compartmentalization too, where it's easy. That's good. Um, yeah. Good I mean, look, I'm a writer and I have a podcast, so I'm speaking for both of us, but it's easy to be like, oh no, no, no I'm winning at this podcast thing. Therefore, yeah. that's my identity as a man and I can ignore everything else in my life. Right. Or right. like, you know, um, I, I like to sail. I have a little nothing fancy, but a sailboat on a lake near our house. And I can be like, no, no, no. I'm the that knows how to sail and has a sailboat. Right. Yes. Like, no, I'm the guy that can fix anybody's truck. Like as long as I've got that identity as that thing that I'm winning at, mm -hmm. that thing that makes me a man in other people's eyes, then it kind of becomes an excuse for us to ignore the other things. That's in our right. Life. And that's what you're describing in that we can we can start to buy the kind of our own PR. We can start to really think we've pulled it off. And man, yes. you leave yourself in a really vulnerable place, prepared for the things life has ahead of you. If you think some little external interest or hobby or career achievement or thing that's you right. share online is enough to define who you are as a man. Yeah. So guys, take a, take a moment to really inventory. Like what are some of the things that you're clinging on to? Some of the titles that you're taking on as your identity? Because I'll tell you what, some of the biggest disruption of my life has happened over the last year, which is why God told me that trust and reliance is going to be uh, a huge for me this year. And for me, it was separating from the Marine Corps. Um, and it was not going to be under my own terms. So I chose that, you know, I chose the path of not being vaccinated and the DOD did not like that. Um, I stood my ground and they said, well, you're going to get kicked out. And I've been in that process for the entire year. Now, 
in that process, I needed to come to terms with the fact that for the last 11 years, 12 years of my life, I've devoted my entire personality, my manhood, like who I am to Ray the Marine. I have been Ray the Marine because I'm really dang good at it. Right. And so now this thing's being ripped away from me and I'm like, who am I again? Like the last job I've held before the Marine Corps was at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> and I'm supposed to go join. <laughs> Don't go back I was Chuck E. Like, by there's the way. Something better. There's something better ahead. <laughs> I was Chuck E. Cheese, by the way, guys. Chuck E. was in my uh, Chuck E. Cheese, a 65 year old woman, a five foot four uh, Spanish man, and then a six foot five uh, white man. So it just, you know, it alternated. Um, and so I'm like, man, who am I? Who am I supposed to be? I'm supposed to go join like the workforce and go be somebody. But if I'm not Ray the Marine, then what am I? Um, you know, I pride myself, even just the discipline that I bring to life to my children is because, you know, I attribute it to the Marine Corps and everything that I've learned here. And there's some good things there. And so I think, well, I've succeeded here. I could apply this here. I'll tell you what, guys, one area that being in the Marine Corps does not help in is uh, is marriage. Uh, apparently, you can't show up and talk to your wife like you talk to Marines. Uh, doesn't work. <laughs> so... <laughs> But yeah, no, I appreciate you pointing that out, uh, Chase. And I want to be able actually to, I think we've teased it guys enough. And this is just part of uh, having an awesome conversation. I want to be able to get to the five uh, masculine instincts. If you could break that down, kind of lightly explain to it, and then maybe we can go back through a few. Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned before, I, I get these instincts from Shakespeare and a couple of things that I think are worth setting up. Um, the word instinct was intentional. Uh, I used C.S. Lewis's definition of instinct, that an instinct is behavior as if from knowledge. So in mm. other words, there are things going on in your life that are leading you to behave in certain ways. And they seem to you without much consideration as sort of obvious, like something you've thought about and decided when in reality, a lot of that behavior is being motivated by something you've probably never thought very much about. Um, it's an instinct, kind of a reaction, an impulse within your life. It's also worth saying that these instincts are not necessarily negative. They're not necessarily positive. I think these are really neutral. And this is where we move into a conversation about wisdom. There are certainly sins that the Bible says, you know, hey, if you want to honor the Lord, don't do this. Don't behave this way. Right. Uh, there are other areas of life where perhaps we're into a realm of wisdom where even a good thing, if it becomes out of balance or out of proportion or becomes an ultimate thing, can lead towards sin or destruction. And I think these instincts fit into that category. They're not the five masculine expectations. You have to have these five things to qualify as men. They're not the five sins of men. You know, better be careful and watch out for these things. They're the instincts. These are the things that in a man's life can motivate your behavior. And if you lose sight of them, if you lose the ability to check them, right, to mature them, they can lead you to destructive places. And I try to show that through the biblical characters. So the five instincts that I describe in the book are sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. And I get those from a monologue in one of Shakespeare's plays where he says, the opening lines will be familiar, all the world's a stage and each of us men and women have our entrance and exits and a man in his day plays several parts. Shakespeare was kind of, I think of him as a great psychological writer. He's trying to capture human nature and why we do what we do. And he depicted these images, really, these descriptions of a man from what we would call kind of, uh, well, originally he had them going birth to death. I look at the middle five. 
from a schoolboy age on through to what we might imagine as retirement. And those five stages for him were the, the, the boy reluctantly dragging himself to school, which I associate with sarcasm and the story of Cain in the Bible, really a conversation about maturity. The second is an image Shakespeare has of the, the thwarted lover who's always on epic quests and looking for romance, the kind of idealist, which I associate with adventure and the character of Samson in the Bible. Shakespeare's next image uh, uh, was the, the soldier who's full of oaths and quick to action and ready to right wrongs to make the world a better place, which to me feels a lot like I use the word ambition. I use the story of Moses to look at that ambition. The fourth one is reputation. Shakespeare's image is one of my favorites. He says uh, he starts to cut his beard the way he's expected to and dress the way he's expected to and puts on a little bit of weight. Uh, this is sort of that midlife moment where you've achieved something and now you start worrying a little more about protecting it. Your reputation, yeah. that respectability you've earned, you know, fitting in, protecting the public image. Uh, I use David's story to take a closer look at reputation. That's good. And then the last one is apathy. It, it's kind of a retirement image in Shakespeare. The man's around the house in his slippers. There's a great line that says, uh, but the world has become too wide. Uh, things have just gotten so complicated. He begins to reduce himself down to what he can control. Uh, I call this apathy. And I use the story of Abraham in the Bible to look at this, mm -hmm. this risk of apathy. So five instincts really five things that need to be managed in a man's life. I mean, certainly ambition and reputation are good things. I wouldn't say we need a generation of ambitionless men, but ambition is a thing that can get out of proportion in our life and can actually lead to destruction. As I tried to show, same with adventure, same with reputation. So these are really instincts to be managed, be aware of and be checked within a man's life. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. I, I love that you have, uh, these sort of neutral things, right? But then we can look at the vices of them. Like what, what does it look like when you have too much of this and when you have too little of this? And I mean, can you have too little of sarcasm? I'm sure, I'm sure you'll explain exactly what it is, what you mean there. Uh, because yeah, some of it can mean like sense of humor. Sure. That's how we think of it. But I know what you write about is actually much deeper than that. And it's something that's more detrimental when we go to, uh, to the far right of it. And uh, yeah, if we, I mean, if we can even just start there, I'm interested in yeah, hearing a little bit about Cain. Yeah. Yeah. So sarcasm, you're right. It's um, we tend to think of it a little more as what's the positive form of sarcasm, but I think sarcasm shows up in the old Testament prophets. I think Jesus uses sarcasm at a moment in moments to try to draw out points with his opponents. Um, there's certainly nothing wrong with a sarcastic joke. I'm not saying, you know, you've sinned if you ever are sarcastic with your buddies, <laughs> But we all know there is a form of immaturity that can't take anything seriously, that makes yes. everything a joke as a way of not having to actually deal with it or face it. Again, Shakespeare's image is the schoolboy who's reluctantly dragging himself to school, doesn't want to grow up, doesn't want to learn, doesn't want to deal with the real world. I use the story of Cain because Cain has a moment of sarcasm with God. Um, the real question in Cain's story, if you know it, is Cain's sacrifice was rejected by God. His brother Abel's was uh, received by God. The question is, why does God reject Cain's sacrifice? And the Bible's not really that clear about what it was that led to that. But it does say that God came down and initiated a conversation with Cain and told Cain, sin is crouching at your tent door like an, a wild animal. Its desire is to rule over you if you don't rule over it. Well, the natural thing for Cain to do in that moment would be to ask God, why? Why did you reject my sacrifice? What is this sin that you see inside of me that I'm unaware of, that it's outside my tent door hiding from me? This is a moment for Cain to mature, for him to grow, to better understand himself and God. But what does he do? He doesn't respond to God. 
he goes out and murders his brother Abel. And when God comes back a second time and says, where is your brother Abel? Cain responds to God, am I my brother's keeper? You know, you hear his sarcasm. He uses sarcasm as a tool to cover up his contempt for authority, for the divine lesson. Uh, it is a way of sort of sounding clever without having to answer the question. And there can be a kind of sarcasm that works itself into our life that just refuses to take authority seriously, that refuses to learn lessons from God, that feels wrong anytime somebody points something out that might be wrong within our life, that feels that's some sort of unfair judgment, that's quick and, repul and uh, uh, impulsive to reaction, tends to sort of react without being able to control that reaction. So I write in the book about the intentional practice of humility, the willingness to crack the door open to God and, and in a moment recognize perhaps there is something in my life that's wrong. Perhaps there is immaturity. Perhaps there's something God is trying to discipline and grow me out of for something better. That pause and moment of humility to entertain what God might be trying to teach you is the way you overcome that instinct of sarcasm in your life. Wow. But, but it requires a pause. And I think that right there is the, is the the first challenge is the fact that while you're going about life in your own natural way of doing things, right? Because we're all stuck in our own sanity. Uh, you actually have to pause and reason, right? That it's what Cain oh, ultimately on. gets wrong, right? What he yeah. gets wrong is he can't pause and listen to what God is saying mm -hmm. to him and entertain the idea. Maybe I have done something wrong. And maybe God, by his grace, is pointing it out so that I could mature and grow beyond it. He actually has a, everybody looks at Cain's rejection as a negative thing. I think it's a remarkable gift God's giving him. God comes down and initiates a conversation to explain to him how he wants to worship and how sin is about to wreck his life. I mean, God's giving him this warning and Cain can't pause. He can't entertain that lesson. He can't fathom that he could be wrong. And instead he reacts. He strikes down his brother and uh, revenge for what he can't receive from God. So yeah, that moment of pause really becomes everything for what it means to mature and grow as a man. Yeah. I guess I'm trying to, I'm trying to like find what leads a man to live there. What is it that keeps us there? You know what I'm saying? What contains us in that, in that one phase where we don't even progress forward and we just, we're 50, we're not fifties and we're still living out of this, this phase. What are you, what are your thoughts? Mm, that prevents us from maturing. Is that the question? Yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. And I'm saying, I guess I would say if I ever found myself in this phase where I'm just like, <laughs> I have this, nothing is serious. I'm having this contempt for lessons and, and authority, which I have had. Right. And I'm thinking like high school. Right. But then what keeps us there when we're, let's say in our thirties, where we don't mature out of there besides just the fact that, you know, we don't pause long enough to ask to, 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 mm. to seek. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think so. I think oftentimes this stage is associated with youth maturity, as it was okay. you're describing, as it is with Cain, the reluctant schoolboy. Cain's the firstborn, you know, of creation. Yeah. We're kind of in that that theme. But I think it's something you can revert back into later at life. And I think we mm -hmm. use sarcasm as a way of covering up our contempt for authority. So it makes me feel clever. It makes me feel if I can sort of see behind everything and laugh at everything and ridicule everything, that it makes me feel like I'm in control. It makes me feel like nobody's going to nobody's going to blindside with me with anything. Nobody's going to get at me. It's sort of this hard shell of cynicism around us. And I think it's easy yes. because of our own failures. I think it's easy because of 
not wanting to deal with challenges around us in culture or relationships to withdraw into that place of cynicism. You know, everything's a joke so that we don't have to take anything seriously. So I think it can stunt growth, but I think it's something we can also slip back into as a defense mechanism. Wow. So well said. So well said. Okay. So if we were, um, you know, I know, I know this isn't meant to just look as a progression, right. Of things, because you can bounce back and forth between this one stage and another, or you can be living in a stage for much longer in life. I, I know we want to see it as that, right. Like you're maturing from one thing to the next to the next, or maybe it, what are your thoughts there? Do we have different degrees of this? Yeah, I think it's helpful. I mean, Shakespeare lays them out. He's using the images of somebody maturing physically as they grow. But I think it also is related to these hint to once you start opening the door to what God is doing within your life, it exposes more things. I do think you start to grow through. Mm -hmm. So I think for a lot of men, it would be easy to look at their life in these sort of stages. Boy, I see that in my teenage years. I see adventure in my 20s. I see sort of ambition in my 30s and 40s. I see reputation mattering 40s and 50s, then apathy later in life. I think that works. Like if if that's fitting for you, run with it. But it's also easy to slip back into these things or to fall into them because of life situations. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Or or unchecked uh, thought patterns and unchecked... uh, yeah, ideas in our minds that we're like, you know, you got fired from your job in your thirties and you guess what you're slipping back into. There goes sarcasm again. You know, nobody's yep. holding you accountable to, to walk out of that. Yeah. No, that very good point. Let's take a quick moment to hear from the sponsor of this episode, mastermypurpose.com. If you want to clarify your God-given purpose, master the skills of some of the world's most successful and purpose-driven men and march into action right now, then make sure that you head over to mastermypurpose.com for your free 21-day guide to a purpose-driven year. You'll be able to join the army of men already marching into a new direction and purpose. Again, that's mastermypurpose.com. Okay, so then I think a lot of the listeners here might be very interested. I mean, in all of them, I know, guys, but uh, in maybe an adventure and ambition, because I think as I see those words, I'm like, hey, you're describing me, right? Like, this is, this is where I live. So what did you mean by adventure? Okay, so adventure is an important one because I'm certainly not saying you better never have an adventure. You better never do anything adventurous in your life. Right. Um, There are some men, and we've had this conversation, particularly within Christian conversations about manhood. You know, some of the books in the past have been all about why men need adventure. There is certainly a kind of man whose life has slipped into a kind of meaninglessness that doesn't have a big story to it that may need to step into adventure as a way of waking themselves back up to life's meaning. But my experience has been there's even more men who have become so obsessed with adventure, quest, this cultural idea that I've got to I've got to leave tradition and place and family and expectations to go find my true identity. Uh, More men tend to sort of obsess and absorb their life in this constant need for adventure as a path towards identity. And my experience has been that it doesn't usually pay off. I use the story of Samson. Um, Samson is constantly chasing the next adventure. It's danger and risk, divine strength. It's uh, romance with women. Uh, It's exotic places down to Philistia, the Philistines. And Samson's story is really a little series of adventure stories. And each adventure, he finds himself in 
danger. This great strength he has comes. He rescues himself. And then he does this thing where he trivializes how God has rescued him and ends up making it more about himself and his own identity. So the one piece of it I like is when he first um, when he first encounters his strength, he tears a lion apart with his bare hands. This lion rushes upon him. Strength comes over him. It says like a like a young goat. He rips this lion apart. Uh, sometime later, he's passing by the area and he's deciding, I want to relive a little bit of that. So he goes back to the place. He sees the carcass of this lion. But as he approaches, he recognizes that inside of the carcass, there's a, a hive of bees and honey. The language there in Hebrew is really interesting. It's actually that in the ruin of the lion, there was a congregation of bees. I think he was having a little bit of a divine moment. Samson had been set apart and called to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. And I think what God was trying to connect there was this divine strength that you've experienced. You've used it on a lion. But the goal is, as that lion, its ruin brought about a place for this congregation of bees, so too your strength will be used. And in the ruin of the Philistines, there will be a place for the congregation of Israel, a safe place, a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, what does Samson do in that moment? He scrapes the honey out, goes on eating it, gets to a drunken Philistine wedding feast and turns it into a drunken pun that he begins to gamble over a riddle. That plays out over and over in Samson's life. God moves in some miraculous way. He trivializes it and uses it for himself and misses the divine lesson at hand. So I try to say to men who find themselves constantly needing the next adventure, constantly thinking everything's holding me back, family, place, tradition, religion. I've got to go find myself. I've got to find my identity. I've got to go on this quest to discover who I actually am. You think that that's going to lead to enlightenment, to self-actualization. But when you continue to indulge that over and over, it actually makes you increasingly less aware of what God is doing in your life. That ultimately there is a kind of discernment that only comes by commitment. The value is at some point we have to belong to a place, belong to a people, settle ourselves down long enough to sense what God is doing and showing us in that place. There's a, a line in the book, I quote a, a famous poet who's advising another poet. And the younger poet was saying, I don't feel like my life has anything worth writing about. It's too boring. And the older poet says, don't blame your life for being boring. Blame yourself as a poet for not being poet enough to recognize the meaning that's in it. And that is what I think is going on in Samson's life. He keeps imagining everything is better out there someplace else. And because of it, he misses the real adventure, the remarkable thing, the story God's trying to write and what he imagines as, as boring and dull. So have your adventures. Fair enough. Go do it. I enjoy it too. But don't allow that need for adventure to, to displace commitment to really settling yes. in and cultivating those skills to discern what God is doing, perhaps in that job that's not as fulfilling as you thought it would be, or that hometown you got stuck in but thought you might leave, or even a marriage or a family that perhaps feels like it's just holding you back in some way. Settle into those things and begin to cultivate that sense of how God is at work within them. Yeah. I'm having a picture of a guy just sitting down scrolling and seeing the adventures that somebody else is having on Instagram. And he's constantly reminded how mediocre his life is, quote unquote, his own words. And then 
you know, this idea that somebody exposed to me that normal is now boring. Right. And so like being normal, doing things regular is not cool enough for you to post anything about. So therefore your life has no meaning or it's just not as cool as the next guy. And you're, you're kind of lame. You know, I hate to use those terms. I hate to use those words, but um, these are just well, some of the of, thoughts of the ideas that are pervasive. Yeah. The, the, the idea beneath it is that if you had amazing experiences if you were constantly living life on the edge, it would make you a deeper, wiser, more fulfilled person. Yes. And I think it's the opposite. I think if you're constantly chasing the next adventure, it tends to make you a shallow, undiscerning person. The things that make you really yes. a person of thoughtful depth and meaningness, meaningfulness are the things that take a long time and require a lot of commitment. The things that matter most in life are the things that take commitment, right? Why is a marriage meaningful? Not because you're constantly chasing the next marriage, but because you committed yourself to a person for decades for your life. And out of that, you cultivate a kind of love that is only possible over decades and years. It's the same with any skill set. I mean, you're doing jujitsu, I think you said. Like the wrong yeah. approach is every two months, I'm going to change disciplines and go pursue some, some new some new thing, right? You only really get good at it. You only really cultivate what it's meant to be when you commit yourself to it for a long time, well past when it's exciting. Sure. You've got to go through the phase of it being boring and brutal before you can start to really understand what it actually is. So all the things that matter most in life require commitment, but we do. We look at Instagram and think, no. Being on that island, going to that trail, you know, having that that backpacking experience like those are the things that make life yeah. meaningful. Nothing wrong with doing them. Go enjoy them. But the things that matter most are the things that only come about through commitment. Yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking of John Eldridge and how he really brought this idea that men are always trying to answer the question of, do I have what it takes? And I think that we do get stuck there. We get stuck in this um, constant pursuit for affirmation that I have what it takes to do this, that I have what it takes to climb that mountain, to take down that boar, to, you know, hunt this bear. And, and you're going after and, and maybe even addicted to some of these adventures. And maybe, you know, you're there guys, just as, as maybe like something to just look at your own life. And, and again, take some inventory. You'll know if you're there, if you find yourself starting a lot of things and not finishing them through, like you're saying, Chase, right? You're, you're not in it for the long haul, right? Maybe I'm doing jujitsu and I'm sticking to that. I'm not going to go try to also try karate and dabble in Taekwondo and dabble in, you know, kickboxing, whatever, or it's just, I'm going to stick to one thing and try to be uh, really good at that one thing. Um, so, and yeah, there's an art in that. There's a respectfulness in that, that maybe we don't, adequately value right now because we're so drawn to the cool adventure that somebody gets to post about that we didn't get to we didn't get to go on because guess what we have three kids who are in school we have two puppies and we have two mortgages you know what i'm saying so it's just it is what it is what are your thoughts yeah i totally agree i i maybe it sounds cheesy to some too i don't my view of faith is nothing. You don't miss out on anything that part of what eternity mm -hmm. is, is nothing is lost. So, you know, I mentioned I like to sail. I love to read books about sailing over oceans. You know, they, you get guys that do these solo Atlantic crossings. 
man, if I, if I like had no responsibility, that would be it. Right. But I pastor a church. I've got two young kids. Like I'm not taking two or three months off to go <laughs> sail an ocean anytime, but who knows? Maybe yeah. that's my, my eternity plan. Maybe there's some oceans in heaven that I'll get to cross. Like as much as I sort of <laughs> joke about that, I really deep down believe that stuff, right? Like there's no trail that yes. ultimately you'll hike it sometime. You'll get all those things you're looking for, which honestly, they're never just that physical thing, right? It is that proving myself that test. Like, yeah, nothing's mm-hmm. lost. Like God will give you all that stuff thrown in. Um, but if you're desperate to just find it yourself and willing to break all of your commitments along the way, I just think it leads to a form of shallowness that never actually fulfills on what it's, what it's pitching you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you know, I, I actually want to include this in there. Uh, there's a, a level of inappropriateness when a general shows up to the front lines. And there's been story after story of generals in World War II in Vietnam who have this uh, desire to be in the middle of the action, but everybody else knows around them, this is not your place. You need to be in a place where you are thinking of strategy, right? Where you are further along here because you're supposed to leave this to these guys here. These are the ground troops that are taking care of the front line so that you can think strategically about the entire battle. Uh, but when we're stuck to this desire of being in the front line, right? To being in the middle of the adventure, to being in the middle of the happening, um, we, we can be in an inappropriate place. Does that make yeah. sense? Man, what a great image. That's a, what a great question too, to just say, uh, make it a matter of prayer. All right, Lord, what is the place that I'm supposed to be in? And can I just be in that place? Right. Like that's a, that's a really helpful way of putting that. I like that, that image a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about ambition then. Ambition. Yeah. So ambition is uh, the analogy I like to use is ambition is like a, a vial of poison that if you are a skilled, wise doctor who understands medicine, you can actually use the right dose to save a person's life. But if you are reckless and unwise on how to handle it, it will kill you just as quickly, right? Ambition is a good thing, a God-given thing, something that I think men need in their life. But it takes a certain level of maturity and discipline and wisdom, character, to be able to handle ambition in its rightful way. Because it will will consume you and, and eat you alive if you mishandle ambition. It just grows and grows and grows. I use the story of Moses to talk about ambition. Um, Moses... Uh, strikes down two Egyptians. He's been raised in Egyptian household, but he goes out and sees his Hebrew brothers being beaten. And he strikes down this Egyptian that's beating them. And the book of Acts tells us he believed that the people would rally behind him and he would lead them to freedom. It's definitively a moment of ambition, action led by that vision that he has. But as you know, they end up sort of mocking him and rejecting him and he flees into the wilderness. Then 40 years later, he has this burning bush experience where God says, I want you to go back to Egypt. And now I want you to lead my people out. I'm going to go with you. You would expect Moses to say, absolutely, I was in. I've been waiting 40 years for this. But instead, he says, "Ah, I don't know. Like, is there someone else you could get to do it? I'm slow of speech. They're not going to believe that you sent me. Can you send someone to help? He finally says, "Can, can it just be someone else? we wrestle with how those are both ambition, but in my experience, that's, that is both the experience of ambition that in one moment, ambition will make you feel like I can do anything, accomplish anything. I've got this sometimes in the same day, a few hours later, that same ambition will make you feel like there's no way I can do it. I'm always going to be defeated. I'm I'm miserable because ambition, what it really is, is at its core is I have a vision of something meaningful that I'm going to accomplish. And what happens is I begin to measure everything against the fulfillment of that vision. 
So I begin to measure myself and my own worth against achieving that goal. I begin to measure the people around me by whether they're helping me or hindering me from reaching that goal. I begin to judge God for if he's given me the skills I need or the resources I need to achieve that goal. Everything in your life becomes measured against the fulfillment of that vision that you have. This works itself out in real disobedience for Moses. 40 years of leading the people through the wilderness, which was brutal, and they're constantly complaining. And he was saying, this isn't what I imagined it was going to be. Again, they complain about not having water. God says to Moses, go out and speak to the rock and give my people water. So what does Moses do? He goes out and he gathers all the people and says, listen, you rebels, must we provide water from this rock? And he strikes it with his staff. Well, he got a lot wrong. He struck the rock instead of speaking to it. But also all of that was his language. You rebels, God didn't tell him to say that. Must we? Well, who is the we? Is now you and God? Are you guys together? Like you, you get to use yeah. that pronoun for both of you. Well, Moses falls prey to that ambition becoming out of proportion for him. He uses that vision he has of what it will be to lead Israel into the promised land. And by it, he begins to judge the very people God's called him to lead. You rebels, you stiff necked people, you're constantly complaining. He begins to despise them. He begins to misplace his own emotions for God's emotions, right? He's no longer submissive yeah. to God. He now thinks it's me and God having to deal with you. And it leads to real disobedience. He strikes the rock. He doesn't obey God. And because of that, God will keep him from going to the promised land. We'll ask him to die on Mount Nebo, looking out, literally from Mount Nebo, you look down on the promised land, but Moses won't enter it. He makes him, God makes him lay down that vision, that ambition of his life, because God in the end has to be enough. It's the way of checking that ambition. Um, I think I write in the book about Sabbath as a tool to check ambition. And we tend to think of Sabbath as if I take one day a week off, I'll be more productive on the other six, right? It's like a life hack. God gave us the secret to getting more done. I think that's the exact opposite. Yeah. Sabbath is, and this is a hard one to accept, but Sabbath is accepting. I will only ever achieve six sevenths of what I am capable of achieving that I'm going to intentionally limit what I could do as a way of not allowing ambition to overwork itself in my life, to outpace God. I'm going to carve out a fraction of what I'm capable of achieving, my work, and set it aside to God to ensure that it is submissive to him, that it's aware of how he's leading me. That Sabbath is a tool of checking ambition and making sure that vision that you're striving after, remember a good thing, a thing that can lead to good things, that it doesn't become too much in your life. It doesn't become too controlling. It doesn't become a tool you use to judge God and yourself and the people around you. I have so much going on in my mind about this. And it's probably because <laughs> this is smacking me in the face. You know, <laughs> like this is where I am right now. I'm uh, for sure. Too. I mean, we're probably both life stage wise. That's why this one starts making some sense too, right? Trying to do something yeah. meaningful. Yeah, I mean, recognizing how desperate it can make you. Yeah. And, and how much it can cost or, and how much of an invitation it can be to get to, it's not like we need to, uh, you know, bring God along. It shouldn't be like that in the first place, right? God is, is present from the beginning of it. Um, but an invitation to say, okay, I'm going at your pace, Lord. I don't want to outpace the cloud that's covering me right now. And I'd rather do six sevenths of what you set out for me rather than uh, sprint up ahead. And this is the man, this is me in my twenties. I, I think that God blessed me with enough um, ambition 
to uh, to continue moving forward. But then I have this thing that if left unchecked, I will just not know my own boundaries. I don't know or understand um, limits. And so I'm just like, well, I got a yes, <laughs> like two months ago on this, I can just keep going. There must also be a yes for this. And this is why like there's portions of the story. Uh, you know, I always go back to like judges and, um, and first and second Samuel, where like, there's these moments where these judges are like, Lord, should we, should we go up against the Philistines? And the Lord's like, yes. And then it happens again. Lord, should we go up? Yes. And then the third time, Lord, should we go up? No. And like, if you didn't take that time to pause to actually like inventory and, and, and ask and seek the Lord, your own ambition would be your own peril. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it's so easy to do. Um, and you see the destruction of it, right? I mean, I, I feel like I need to keep coming back to ambition is a good thing. Like you should be wanting to do something yes. meaningful with your life, but you have to have enough wisdom. You have to cultivate the kind of character that doesn't allow that vision to outpace what God is actually asking of you because the destruct, it can be really destructive. I mean, you see the conflict between Moses and the people, the conflict suddenly between Moses and God, the conflict, you, Moses loses the thing in the end. I mean, how many men have just destroyed their marriages because they're constantly pressing for more, destroyed their children and their families, you know, destroyed companies or churches they lead because their ambition was relentless. And then in the end, have that experience right. of just feeling worthless themselves. I don't think that's what God gives us ambition for. I don't think it's, well, that's the cost yes. we have to pay to do that great thing. No, no, no. It's when that good thing has become too important to you. It's when you can't set it down for one day a week. Um, I mean, I think Sabbath is supposed to be really practical, right? God's it's about the most practical yes. thing he gives us. I want you to just stop one day a week. Like if you're obsessing over that side hustle, if you're obsessing, obsessing over that vision for some company you want to start, if you're, you know, a pastor and you're obsessing with how to get that church bigger, if you can't turn that off for even one day a week, it should be a flag to you that it's probably become something more than God is asking it to be. It's become something by which you're defining and valuing yourself. You're judging people. You're judging your relationship with God. You desperately need a, a day where you can just stop, set that thing down and be before God. Not because not just because, well, you're going to you're going to outwork yourself. You're going to get tired if you try. No, no, no. You will destroy things that matter most to you. Yeah. If you cannot learn to check that ambition. Yeah. And this is where it is so counterculture because I remember seeing a tweet from Elon Musk that so many people wanted to retweet and just like agree with and it's like, oh yeah, man, he's so right. He's so smart and brilliant. I think uh, Elon said, nobody changed the world on uh, 40 hours a week. <laughs> and I just like want to say, have you met Jesus? <laughs> you know, so there's well, this constant that, idea this that like, I got to do more that wisdom thing too. Right. Cause we would all like to just like, exactly. wouldn't it be cool if this book was just like, here's how to do it. My six steps to properly handling ambition. The truth is we're all, we're all different. Like some of us, like some of us can run with a little more ambition because we've got the skill set mm -hmm. to, to handle it. Well, some of us are just getting started with ambition and man, we got to be even more careful, right? It tends to be the opposite, right? We tend to, at the beginning, <laughs> think we can carry more than we can. But part of this is yeah. just recognizing, and God has gifted some of us with skill sets. I mean, Elon Musk is able to do more in his 40 hours than I could do in probably 80. Uh, we all have got different skill set, which is why this isn't a yes or no conversation. It's not a sin or not sin conversation. It's a it's a character wisdom conversation. I need some intentional right. practices in my life 
to to throw up warning flags, to throw up lights on the dash when it's starting to get out of proportion for me. And that may at times in my life may come sooner. I might be able to run with a little more down the road. I don't know. So I need to be paying closer attention to God for those warning signs of when ambition is is going beyond where it should be in my life. Oh, that's so good. And, and as a shameless plug, I will say this is something that we do cover in the Purpose Driven Man course, uh, because we we talk about identifying those things that like are at truly important, right? From the very beginning, really like get down to the bare bones. What is truly important in these certain areas of our lives so that when opportunities or distractions come up, you can assess them accurately and not be sacrificing your family at the altar of business or sacrificing your finances at the altar of whatever, because you are so, uh, you know, wrapped up your mind. So wrapped up in this, in this idea that there's no wisdom, there's no true wisdom, um, with your approach, you know, so do you dream of being known as a resilient and confident Christian man? Maybe you've even wished that you would finally become more faithful and disciplined, but after trying so damn hard, you still don't see any lasting change. So you feel discouraged and ashamed. And I get that because that was me more than eight years ago. But I can tell you right now that one of the things that's going to help you become the man that God created you to be is by getting a life coach, somebody who's going to be in your corner and walking with you along the way. And because I understand the transformative power of a virtual life coach, I want to offer you a free session right now on me. All you have to do is head over to thebecomingmen.com forward slash coaching. Again, that's thebecomingmen.com forward slash coaching. Okay. So then let's run through reputation. This is, this is good. (laughs) Yeah. I love David's story, which I use for reputation. There's a, there's an interesting theme going on in the books of first and second Samuel with Saul and David about clothing. Um, If you, if you read through those books, like just make a little note in the margin, every time you see clothing mentioned, because there's a ton of them, right? When David fights Goliath, Saul tries to put his armor on him and Goliath takes it off to fight Goliath is who he is a shepherd. Um, Jonathan realizes that David will be the next heir to the throne and takes off his royal robe and gives it to David as a sign. When um, Saul is losing the kingdom in desperation, he reaches out and grabs the hem of Samuel, the prophet's garment, and it tears. And Samuel says, as my garment has torn, so God will tear the kingdom from you. I mean, you go on and on. There's tons of these. One of my favorite ones, though, is when David is he's kind of consolidating power. He's he's come to the throne. He's captured Jerusalem, the city of David. Right. It's named after him. He's moved his headquarters there. He's built a palace and he discovers that the ark has been just in someone's home for a number of decades. And he goes out and he gets the ark and he's bringing it to the city of David. So this is this it is somewhat of a PR moment, right? It's his political achievement, faith and power. And all of this is sort of coming together under his rule. And the language used for what's described is they take musicians, they build this cart that they're going to carry it on. He's leading the King David himself leading the procession. Um, I imagine the scene from, I've got little kids, but from Aladdin, when uh, Prince Ali is coming into Agrabah, right? It's like elephants and peacocks and confetti. And like, that's the kind of image you get here. It's the same language used. It's not religious. It's the language used when the women were singing, Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. That's the same description of this sort of celebration going on. Well, in the middle of this procession, the one of the ox stumbles, the ark begins to shift on the on the cart. You saw the priest puts his hand up and steadies it and is immediately struck dead in the middle. Uh, the re- the record scratches and the whole party sort of freezes and everybody looks at David. What do you do now in the middle of this celebration and God just struck someone dead in the middle of it that touched the ark that you're sort of celebrating. Well, David became frustrated and upset and they ditched the ark in a house nearby and everybody went home. They called the whole thing off. 
And a number of months went by and David goes back to try it again. But this time they take a few steps. He stops. They sacrifice an animal. It's explicitly now a religious ceremony. The priests carry the ark as they were instructed to do. And it says that David was wearing a simple linen ephod. It's the same garment that Hannah used to sew for Samuel when he was a boy that she would take up to the temple every year. It's the common garment that a worker in the temple would wear. So this is not there's no gold, there's no jewels, there's no it's a linen cloth that a servant would wear when they're doing business, when they're carrying out cleaning up, doing administrative work inside the temple. When David gets back, they make it this time. His wife, who is Saul's daughter, Michal, says to him, how you humiliated yourself today like a common servant before the people. What she's upset with David about is you didn't play the public role you were supposed to play as king. You showed yourself to be a servant when you should have demonstrated to everyone your power as king. You should have been wearing royal garments and projecting the image of your power. Instead, you projected the image of a servant. Well, what she doesn't understand is what David at times gets right, at times gets wrong that it's more important for him to be who he actually is before the Lord than to obsess over the public image that he's projecting. At times, David gets this right. He takes off Saul's armor. He humbles himself as a servant before the ark instead of trying to make it about his achievement as a king. Uh, but there are other times he gets it wrong. Whenever he sins with Bathsheba, he goes about damage control, covering up his sins, murders Uriah. He basically does a little cleanup campaign to make sure that his image as king is preserved. So I use the chapter to talk about reputation and integrity. Reputation is a good thing. The Bible encourages us to pay attention to our reputation, to have a good reputation. But if that concern for public image begins to sacrifice your integrity, then it's become a kind of facade, a kind of shell and appearance. And I like to define, we're in a political season where everybody's putting yard signs out, right? I like to define integrity. Integrity is the kind of word that shows up on yard signs of politicians. And we think it means something like, I always do what's right, or I do what's right when no one's looking is kind of the definition you'll hear of integrity. I like to define integrity as I'm willing to bear responsibility for even the things that I don't get right. In other words, I've done enough inventorying of my life that I am aware of both the good and the bad, and I'll bear responsibility. I'll acknowledge everything that exists within my life. We talk about structural integrity of a bridge or a house. It means there's no cracked beams somewhere in the attic, right? The foundation isn't split somewhere. We know the whole. Integrity comes from the word integer, a whole number. There's no divisions. There's no fractions. The whole thing is 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 true. So integrity doesn't mean I always do what's right, but it means when I do what's wrong, I'm willing to inventory that and work that into the whole image I have of who I am. There's nothing hidden away. And in the end, David does this in a kind of remarkable way. David is not a, a character that you would say, I wouldn't say I want my son to grow up and do everything David did. There's certainly things I would like him to avoid that David did. Uh, and David's sins play out in the lives of his children in some pretty destructive ways. There's David's a complicated figure. But in the end, we know more about David than we know about anyone else in the ancient world. We have more written by David. We have the Psalms. We have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles. We have um, we have the story of the kings that keep alluding back to the tradition of David. David becomes a figure not because he always does what's right. He becomes a figure because he's willing to confess the honesty of his whole life. And at times in the Psalms, he willingly lays that all out, the whole image of who he is for good and bad, the Psalms of, of repentance and brokenness. 
And in a world we live in where politicians can spend millions of dollars to cover up their sins and hire attorneys to pay people off or, or hire PR firms to work on their reputation management, David doesn't do that. He could have burned the records. He could have killed anyone who wrote anything negative about him. But in the end, we know the whole story of David for good and bad because he was willing to be a person of integrity, a person who just bore responsibility for everything that was in his life. I think that's what we're called to as men as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and so when we find somebody who is not living with integrity, we can spot it out. Even if we can't point directly to what it is about that guy that I just, I, I don't know what it is. You can spot it out because you feel um, the broken, the division within themselves when they are one thing in one light and then another in another light. And you're like, there's just, there's no congruency there. And it rubs people the wrong way. And I'm sure nobody wants to look at himself in the mirror and be like, yeah, I, I'm proud to be that guy. Uh, so what are some of the things that you think that we can do in our lives to ensure that we maintain uh, impeccable uh, integrity? Yeah, it's come up a little bit in this conversation already, but this idea of taking inventory of your life, of being willing to just look yeah. at everything that's there. And I do think you should be practicing confession. I speak of it generally that we know all of of, of uh, David's life, but I think there should be some intentional practice practices of confession. That doesn't mean you go online and just air all your sins to the world. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, you run home to your wife and just confess everything you've ever done. Although there may be a time and a place for that. What it does mean is, I have accountability in people in my life that I'm opening my whole life up to. So a spouse is certainly a part of that. Um, I've got some older pastor friends that are a part of that. I've, I think a lot of that is your life before the Lord in prayer, that you're working through a process of taking things that have been secrets, things that you have not been open and honest about, and you're working those things out in confession to the right people in your life, a pastor, a close accountability friend, a spouse with wisdom, um, we have to start living lives that are open and bringing that, those things we've inventoried out into the light for that integrity to be real. Yeah, I do. I do agree with you there. There has to be sort of an inner circle of people who you are trusting and who you value, whose opinion you value, whose wisdom you value, that this is, that you engage with in this uh, sort of, uh, not just confession, but just being real. Right. Being yeah, it's a more like, way of living than exposed. It is. I'm just going to go home and get it all off my chest and done. Mm -hmm. See, now exactly. I'm integrous, right? It's more, no, no, no. Exactly. How do I live a life that's constantly inventorying, constantly being honest? Um, the other tool yeah. I use just for something really practical is sometimes I'll say to myself, because this helps when it's not just a, a blatant sin, um, but gray areas of integrity. I'll say to myself sometimes, am I about to do something or say something that later I'll be tempted to lie about? And that's a really helpful wow. tool for helping me discern motives and situations. You know, it may not be an obvious sin. I may be able to justify it. But would I lie about this to somebody if some if it got exposed or right. somebody knew? Would I be tempted to lie about it? And if so, then there's usually a question of integrity with either what I'm saying or doing in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I think one of the things about David uh, that really, really does nail this and why you you got this perfectly spot on is uh, that story of when uh, Bathsheba, you know, he does everything with Bathsheba and Uriah. And then uh, Nathan comes in and gives him this whole spiel of this guy who only had one sheep and this other guy who had many. And he took the one guy's sheep and David said, yeah, essentially off with that guy's head. Right. Yeah. And then when Nathan says, uh, well, that's you, he could have been like, well, hold on. You know what I mean? Like, no, absolutely. Like this is, 
this is uh, my right as the king. And you're obviously it's not the same situation, but no, like there was still that integrity uh, in his life to be like, oh my gosh, I have sinned. And he was open to that criticism yeah. uh, to, and then open and willing to be able to admit to that and say, yes, I, I, I need to uh, repent before the Lord. What are your thoughts? Yeah, there? The other terrifying part of that story is Nathan's little parable is not all that clever. Like as the reader, you see it coming. You understand very clearly <laughs> yeah. this is David. Like David should have gotten, yeah, yeah, like yeah. he should have heard the story, yeah. but this is the terrifying part, right? You can compartmentalize your life and you can live into your public facades so much that you can sort of lose yourself in it. You can be- start to believe you're actually that person and you can actually miss, you can miss opportunities to repent. You can miss warning signs about the collapsing stru- structural integrity in your life. Um, you can become kind of dumb to your own sins because you've become so good at just refusing to see them. That's the part that always scares me about David is he walks right into that trap that he should have seen. Yeah. And boy, yeah. we can walk right into some pretty destructive things just because we're not willing to recognize, oh, uh, there is something there that I need to pay closer attention to. Absolutely. Man, that's a good one. That's a really good one. What like... Where in a man's life does this show up the most? Is it, where is it the most prevalent? Again, not trying to give it like a progression of thing, like this only happens in your forties, but like what, what picture do you have in your mind of where a man is in his life when this is uh, at the forefront, at the focal yeah, point? I think it's easy when you've achieved something, you start to hang your hat on as your identity. So, sure. you know, I'm in a stage in my life where I'm a pastor and I wrote a book. Like it's easier to start justifying well, I've been successful, therefore God's blessed me in this area. Or, oh, I can't confess that thing because it's going to ruin this thing that I've achieved. Or, oh, people now see me a certain way because I wrote a book and I'm a pastor. I've got to protect that. Like, I can't let those people. Yeah. Like, you can start to just, once you've achieved something, right? You've got something, you've got, you brought home a little gold. All of a sudden you start hoarding it, protecting it and uh, building defenses around it. And I think that's when it tends to happen most for us. We've got something. And all of a sudden we become really obsessive about projecting the image of it and protecting it um, and sort of removing anything from our life that doesn't fit that image. Yes, that is so well said. I 100% agree with that. Um, And yeah. And so by definition that can happen, that could show up in your twenties. It could show up in your thirties. It can absolutely, it's it's there in your forties because you've just had to at least two decades to build something, uh, something that you hang your hat on. So that's like you can be an Instagrammer obsessed with adventure and your whole life is a kind of public facade of projecting that image and you refuse to be right. open about anything else. I mean, these, these instincts can coexist. It's not just one or the other. I think they tend, yep. we tend to lead with some of these at phases in life, but yeah, certainly exactly. this, this need to protect your public image can exist in all sorts of ways and forms and degrees. So good. Okay. So then that leaves us uh, with apathy. So Shakespeare describes this as kind of the man in retirement. Uh, he also describes uh, his voice, losing his voice, that his, his once manly voice has become pipes and trembles, he says. So it's you, you, it's a symbol of your ability to engage the world. Uh, I always use, there's a, uh, a line in uh, The Count of Monte Cristo where he makes the toast to a guy and he says, you know, you stood before the storm and you shouted into the storm, throw your best at me and I'll show you who I am. And I always joke, that's the young man's game, right? Like you get into a point yes. in life where you're like, I'm too tired for all that. Like you, you, you go, you go take on that challenge. 
There's a scientific yep. idea called entropy. It's one of the laws of thero- thermodynamics that things do not organize themselves. They deorganize themselves. Things don't become simpler. They become more complex. So the universe is constantly expanding. Anything that you build is immediately beginning to fall apart. And the longer you live in life, the more I think you you realize that's true. Um, things you thought you could control, you discover you can't. Things you thought you achieved or accomplished suddenly fall apart relationships that once used to give you life just become more complicated over time. And there is a tendency in us to withdraw from those things we can't control, the things that are too complicated. And so uh, sociologists tell us that as men age, they tend to have less relationships. They tend to have less friendships in life. We do tend to withdraw into hobbies and into interests. I don't think apathy is always a negative thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with retirement. So I'm not anti-retirement. There's seasons of life where I think God allows us to sort of withdraw from some things and let go of some of those responsibilities. Um, I think there's gradually parts of life that even as our energy wanes, there's less we can engage. That's okay. But there is also a kind of apathy that sets in that can refuse to engage anything complicated, that is only willing to embrace or live in the things that I have control over. And so life gets reduced to hobbies and a recliner and television and, you know, fewer and fewer people. And faith becomes maybe something I do on Sunday morning, but not something I'm actively living. I use Abraham's story because there's a kind of false ending that goes on in Abraham's story where you reach the end of Genesis chapter 21 and Isaac, his promised son is finally there. Uh, He signs peace treaties with all of his enemies. He has a well, you know, a place where he can finally settle. It says he plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. It's like he's putting down roots and you would expect the story now to transition to Isaac, Abraham, to Isaac, uh, to Jacob. But you turn the page and you read the opening words of Genesis 22, but God tested Abraham. And it's in this moment that God asks Abraham to go and sacrifice his son. There's a lot that could be said about this passage, but I want to just say this one thing that I think Abraham's most vulnerable moment was not when he was leaving home and following God through unknown lands and facing challenges and enemies and and droughts and famines. His most challenging moment was when he had everything because he may still have faith that God exists but what need is there for him to have faith that's active or alive? What does he believe? What does he trust in God for? There's nothing. He has everything. It's all been fulfilled. And so there's a risk that his life just sort of his the faith in his life just fizzles out here at the end. I think God tests Abraham. I mean, good grief. At this point, Abraham has proved he can pass the test. He's followed God through all sorts of stuff. It's like, has it not been enough, God? Do I have to prove myself again? That's not <laughs> what this test is. This test is yeah. allowing Abraham to wake himself back up to faith being an active thing, to trusting God, to seeing that God is still at work and that he needs God for more things to come. It keeps faith alive within him instead of letting it fizzle out in that apathy that so often comes as we age. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that men in this stage of life really are invited to be, as uh, John Eldridge had put it, uh, sages, right? They're invited into this this point where they can actually uh, not fall back to what they've already built, but from from what they build, they can launch forward into the world and and, and almost help replicate that, right? And and help it um, expand outward. And really uh, taking that invitation and encouraging uh, people who might be along the way is a way of, I'm I'm picturing like the garden, right? Like we were placed in the garden, say it it was a central point and we were meant to 
uh, expand from there. So like the rest of the world was to look like the garden. Right. But instead, like if, if, if we were living in apathy, we would just dwell in the garden and just say, well, yep, this is good. I'm just going to find my favorite tree, throw up my hammock and just hang out here. Israel does this. They get, they make it into the promised land and God had given them all of these cities and boundaries of land and they take a portion of it and then sort of settle into like, this is good enough, right? Like this is enough. Yes. And it's because of that, that through their entire history, they go on having these complicated and, 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 uh, destructive relationships with the Canaanite gods and the Canaanite people. I mean, all the people we've been talking about, Samson and the Philistines, all of this yeah. exists because that generation refused to see through what God had given them, but sort of just settled into yeah, this isn't bad. This is enough for us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and does this show up also in Saul? I think it is when he is told to commit everything to destruction and like he gets to the end of it and then he's like, but these things we're going to kind of just hold on to. We're just going <laughs> to, uh, we did enough. We did enough destroying. I think this is okay. We're good here. And he I didn't fulfill the entire apathy. commandment of the Lord. Yeah, if you look for apathy, it's all over the Bible. So it's it's Adam okay. who passively takes the fruit from Eve. Like, you know, why didn't he say, whoa, 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 right? But he just like, all right, I'll go along. Abraham does this when they can't have a child. Sarah comes and says, hey, maybe you could produce an heir through Hagar. And he just goes along with it. And then when there's conflict in his home between okay. Sarah and Hagar, Sarah comes to him again and says, hey, Hagar's like acting like she's better than me. And Abraham literally says to her in the Bible, you go deal with it. Like he just checks out. I'm not dealing with that drama. Like you go deal <laughs> yeah. with it. Right? He will yeah. not engage it. You see it. Um, what is uh, what does Noah do when he escapes the flood? He plants a vineyard and makes wine and passes out drunk and naked in his tent. Right. Like you go through the Bible. Right. I think there. Are, this is one of the challenges we I think in particular as men have. If we can't control it, if we can't guarantee the outcome of it. We tend to just disengage it and try to just keep things simple. I can live very simple as long as it's not complicated. Um, so there's a real yeah. tendency here to do this. I think you see it all across scripture. Yeah. And, and in your sort of in your idea here uh, and, and what you've proposed, what is some of the ways that we can fight apathy actively fight it? Yeah. So the intentional practice I pair with this is sacrifice that there okay. should be something because that's what that's what ultimately um God is asking of Abraham. Are you willing to continue mm -hmm. sacrificing even the things that matter most to yeah. you? Are you willing to sacrifice yeah. even, uh, you know, let's play it out. I mean, I hope I'm here someday. I hope I have a fully funded retirement account because I was wise and <laughs> invested and saved. I hope I have health. I hope my kids are doing good. I hope everything when I get to be 75, 80, I hope it's all just, you know, enjoyable. But even then, am I willing to continue sacrificing? Am I willing to sacrifice some of that simplicity? Maybe it's finances, but more likely it's time. More likely it's emotional energy. I mean, this is to your point about stages. That requires a certain level of engagement with the questions of our day and the complexities of relationships. Are you willing to pay that price when you could be sitting home watching reruns, you know, drinking your favorite mm -hmm. drink and sitting in your favorite recliner? Are you willing to make the sacrifice to show up and invest your life into complicated lives of younger men around you, uh, that's a sacrifice. And I think God is right. calling us, even as we age and we feel that apathy setting in, to not let our faith become atrophied like that, but keep it alive through the means of sacrifice. Yeah. And I personally believe that sacrifice exists at the center of masculinity, of real biblical masculinity. There has to be sacrifice. Um, and I, th I think you've laid this out perfectly, man. I think the entire um, construct that you have here with sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy is just phenomenal. And I, seriously, I want to say good job. Um, this is yeah, great. Thank you. And if guys, 
If guys want to be able to, first of all, get the book, get a hold of you, um, just really connect with you, where do you want to send them? Sure. So everything, nobody can spell rep logo because my last name's too weird. So everything is at the five masculine instincts.com. That's with the number five. You could Google it. You'll find it. Um, I have a, an online assessment on there. You can take it's 25 questions, nothing long, but it'll, it'll ask you questions through these instincts and it'll give you kind of a suggestion on what, which of these instincts might be strongest in your life. There's some videos on there explaining those. Um, there's also, if you're in a group and interested in doing the book is a group study. There's group resources. So there's a PDF study guide you can use that has personal study questions as well as group ones, as well as some video conversations, similar like what we've had where you can maybe in a nine week group, go through each of the chapters with a video that corresponds. And uh, I know what really all the guys are wondering, yes, there's an audio book. So you don't even have to read. You can just listen to the whole book as well too. I know how we all like our audio books. So yeah. And you can reach out to me on there too. So anything I can do to be helpful, if you fill out that contact form, come straight to me, I'll answer. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Becoming Men podcast. My hope is that this show is impactful and that it is a tool for you to grow as you become the man that you were created to be. If this is your first time joining us, then make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you won't miss another life-changing episode. And by the way, if you want to reach me, get a hold of me personally, you can find me on Instagram, on Twitter at Ray Delanuez. And if you want to help us transform the lives of men from around the world, then you can right now by taking a quick moment to leave us an honest review on iTunes. That small little act does so much to get this podcast in front of the right men. Gentlemen, until next time, continue to march. 